Anyone in the room planning on eating better in the year 2014? Raise your hand if you were planning on that, okay? I am definitely planning on that. A lot of us are. Um, anyone planning on eating worse? Yeah, a couple of the kids, yeah. Brian's like, let's just say it. I'm going to eat worse. I tried to do without Twinkies. It didn't work out well. It was a bad year. You know, we're just, we're bringing those back. As your pastor, I don't care so much about your physical body and how you eat, although I do care about that because that's some value, right? But I really, really care about your soul. I really, really care about what you're feeding your soul. And my prayer for you, my hope for you, my exhortation to you is that you would eat better in 2014 than you did in, in 2000, 2013. And here's what's interesting. I, I, you know, one of the things you notice is tons of articles, tons of thought, tons of planning that can go into how to build a better you how to eat better in 2013, how to balance your trans fats, and whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the mentality might be. And it dawned on me, I wonder how much time and effort, if you were to put it on a scale, people put into, into building a better them right now uh, versus feeding and eating better for eternity, for their soul, like for the, the, the deeper things uh, that, that are going to last a lot longer. And my hunch is that most of us, tend to put more in thinking about kind of the immediate rather than uh, the eternal. Let me show you a verse this morning, and this is just kind of like a, a little pre-sermon is what's going on here. First uh, Timothy 4, 7-8. Carl, can you bring that up? It's not coming up with my remote for some reason. Um, it says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I want you to look at this verse and ask this question or answer this question. Whose responsibility is it for your training in godliness? Yours, right? Train yourself for Godliness. Psalm 105 says this, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Proverbs 8 says, Those who diligently seek for me will find me. And Jesus in Luke 11 says this, Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. I believe many miss out on the joy of searching for God and having God personally reveal himself to them through their personal hunger for him. Um, There's there's so many great things. Uh, If if you think about the the, the reality of of our day and age, we have more access to to, to us in terms of nutritious um, helps, and, and availability to God's word, um, and even helps in understanding God's word, than probably at, at any point in history. There's Bible studies, there's sermons, there's podcasts, devotional books, worship CDs, entire stores built to this, right? Websites galore that can, that can help us in our journey. I think all of those are great, but I think all of those, if you lump all of that together, I, I think they, they look something like this. They're, they're dietary supplements. Those should be supplemental to you eating a meal. How sickly would you be if you got all of your nutrients from vitamins? You'd be in bad shape, right? You would go through life and you would wonder why you're tired. You'd wonder why you're weak. You'd wonder why you're so susceptible to every virus that comes through the office. 
The reason is you're living on dietary supplements. You know why it's easier um, to, 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 to not do this firsthand and eat pre-digested food from someone else? Um, it's because it's because there's a there's a there's a discipline to it. It's easier to swallow a pill than it is to pick up a fork and knife and cut into a steak. But who would rather cut into a steak? Come on now, yeah. A few vegetarians are like ew, but the rest of us are like yeah, give me the meat, right? So while there's while there's some effort to it, and, and I know some of you have said, man, I've tried that. I, I've I, I've tried doing that, and I get discouraged and whatever else. Um, while there's some effort to it, there's so much um, getting back. If you are not purposefully studying and soaking in the Bible, you are missing out on the life God has for you. There's no question about it. There's a whole chunk of your life that is missing, that God wants to do. There's this, uh, there's this partnership we have, catch this, with Almighty God, in that we search for Him and He reveals Himself to us. And the way He seems to enjoy doing that, there's a bit of a dance to it. He doesn't reveal everything all at once. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that you've got something coming up in two weeks, and if you track the revelation of how things are going, you're not going to get all the information you need uh, uh, you know, right now when you want it. It's going to come a little bit at a time. And when you look back on those seasons, here's what you'll find. You'll find that those seasons where you were hungering after God, seeking, and you were going, God, where are you? I need to know this. You come away from those times and say, wow, God met me there in a way that's so different than hearing a sermon, than reading a great book, than hearing what other people get from God's word. So I just, I plead with you to do this. In fact, I say this. With all the authority of God's word in 2014, I want you to eat. I want you to eat well. I want you to feast on God's word this year. I'm going to give you a couple of quick action items, okay, to kind of, to kind of help prod you along. The first is this. I would, uh, I would, Again, plead with you. Enter into this prayerfully. Don't pray, God, do you want me reading your word in 2014? We already know the answer to that. The answer is yes. The the prayer would be this. God, what do you want me to read? What do you want me to focus on? How do you want me to go about this? I hear how Dave does it. I know how my community group leader does it. I know how my friend does it. But, but, but how do you want me to, to interact with this? So, so enter into it prayerfully. Enter into it realistically. Any of you, um, any of you ever just, you know, first day of the year, you're like, I'm going to change everything. And then by January 14th, it's all, you know, nothing's changed at all. Uh, yesterday I went for a bike ride and, and I came home. I lamented to my wife. I said, my bike paths are super crowded. They're jam-packed right now because it's January 5th. And so everyone's out and everyone's got new shoes and new gear and they're all cruising along and I can't ride on my bike path. I can't wait for February. You know why? It'll be empty again, right? I mean, that's just our nature. We tend to go, oh, I want... So be realistic in your Bible reading because what what can happen is we go, I'm going to read the whole thing this year in Greek. Do you know Greek? No, that's my first step. And and then you get really discouraged by January 3rd and then sometimes we can trail off. So, So be realistic in it. I would say this, use helps. Some of you are about uh, physically building yourself and, and, and training and working out for some event or just to keep yourself healthy. And there's personal trainers. There's, there's training partners, right? Isn't it better to have another partner that you, you know you're going to let down if you don't show up at 6 in the morning to go wor- wor- work out with them? There's technology. There's reminders. All of that that's true for the physical is all there for the spiritual. Get yourself a training partner. Get yourself a personal trainer. Say, look, you seem further down the road in this. 
can you can you come yell at me um, to, to no I'm just kidding um, uh, can, can you come work with me and show me how to do this? Would you walk with me in this? There's technology galore. One of the one of the uh, products that I just I just push because I use it every single day of my life is Uversion. Uversion is a free Bible app that's on all of your phones. If your phone is not dumb, if it's a smartphone. Um, and uh, there's a desktop version, so it's there wherever you are. There's reading plans galore. There's reminders you can set up, all kinds of things. So, so use technology that's there. Um, just a quick word to the men in the, in, in the church. Men, lead your families in this. Lead your families in this. Does that mean that I should model it? Yes, that's one thing you should do. You should model this by digesting God's word, by going after it. But more than that, you ought to take your children by the hand and you ought to sit with them in this. You ought to show them how to do it. You ought to read the Bible with them. What a precious thing to sit there with, with God's word open and sitting there interacting. Deuteronomy tells us that we should, we should be talking about these things wherever we go. When we stand up, when we sit down, when we're on the car, you know, on, on the road in the car, when we're in line and, and bringing that into our home. So make it a priority. All right, with that, I say bon appetit, right? That's the close on the mini-sermon. That's 2014. I hope that this has already gone on. If not, it's January 5th. Turn over a new leaf today and start moving forward. All right, Galatians chapter 4. That's where I want you to turn in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, turn to the one uh, that's sitting in the, in the chair in front of you. You can use that one. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are born into a billionaire family. Okay. Now, just for just for the sake of helping your imagination a little bit, um, this is Forbes magazine's list of the top ten billionaires in the world. And what I want to do is I'm going to zoom in here a little bit, um, and and uh, what it shows is is some things. Now you're going to get to pick which billionaire family you get to be in. So there's country of origin over here. It's a little hard to see, but you can be from Mexico, Spain, the United States, Hong Kong, France. So you get to you got to kind of figure out which family you want to be born into. Okay, consider the last name, um, consider the age of your parents, right? Uh, consider, you know, which country you want to be from, but let's pick from, from one of these and pretend that you're born into the billionaire, uh, family. Uh, as a child, growing up, you would be one of the richest people in the world by promise and by bloodline, but not yet by experience. Here's what I mean by that. You'd have this fortune that, that is yours, but it's, but not the freedom to, to see how to spend it and use it and really experience it. If your parents are wise and if, if they're billionaires, they're probably pretty shrewd with their money. They're not going to turn over the family empire to an eight-year-old. So they put the eight-year-old on the now but not yet program. You tracking with me? Because if you give an eight-year-old a couple billion dollars, what are they going to do with it? Yeah. Legoland, I'm buying that. Hershey's Chocolate Factory, I'm all over that. Why have one bar when you can have the whole factory, right? And then I really like, you know, the Giants. So I'm going to buy the Giants. Well, those might be terrible investments, right? So so you don't give the eight-year-old uh, future billionaire all that freedom. You, you put them on the now but not yet program. Until the timing's right, that person, that child, you, would be under supervision. By definition, minors aren't mature. They haven't yet matured. Now, I bring all that up because of this. Today, we are looking at what it means to be in God's family. 
what Paul's talking about in Galatians 4 now is he's kind of talking about the people of God collectively. So he's, he's looking at the history of the people of God. So, so I need you to keep in mind for everything else I say the rest of this morning, it's not so much the individual experience. Remember at the end of chapter 3, we looked at what we were before Christ and what we are after Christ, and faith, faith was that dividing line. We're no longer in prison, but we're rowing happily along outside of San Quentin prison. Remember that? So that, that was more individual. This is now talking about the, 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 the people of God. I want you to do something for me. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to find Matthew. And if you're new to all of this, it's about two-thirds of the way uh, to the back of your Bible. Okay? So leave your finger in Galatians uh, and then, and then just, just, find, just find where Matthew is. And once you get there, I want you to just kind of leave your finger there for a moment. <clears throat> what Paul is going to do here is this. He's going to describe the times of the people of God uh, before Christ came. And if you look at your Old Testament, that's what we're talking about. It's the life and times of people here. These, in essence, were the minors. They were the children. They were under supervision until a point came in time. So leave your finger there. We're going to do a little finger gymnastics. And then turn back over to Galatians so that you can... Follow along and make sure that I'm not making this stuff up, okay? Galatians chapter 4, but really we'll pick it up from one verse before, talking about children and heirs. Look at verse 3, 329. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's Paul's logic. Once you were a child under the law, that's Old Testament, that's everything left of your finger right now. As a minor, you were no more free than slaves in essence. It was like, it was like a slave and a child growing up in the same household and still being under guardians and, super, and, and supervisors until a certain point. Jesus' arrival and the salvation that he brings is our coming of age. If you look at the Bible, that's the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about that. The whole Old Testament is pointing toward those four books and this revolutionary time where God's going to come and he's going to change everything. And then the rest of the New Testament, everything right of that is what Paul says this. Now in Christ we enjoy the full status and freedom of adopted sons. We're owners of the whole estate. And not only are we owners of the whole estate, but we now get to move and live in that freedom because of what Christ did. So you see how Paul has this way of taking all of history. He just kind of expands back and blows back and tells us these different things that are going on. So that's what he's doing here in chapter 4. Already he's talked about the law being a prison warden and a babysitter, and today he's referring to it kind of as a guardian or a trustee. And all of it points to this, that in an earlier time, 
The people of the, the, there was a season of time where we were immature and Christ is our coming of age and that's what changes everything. And we now get to live in a brand new way. Look at verse four to five. Four to five are two incredible verses in all of the Bible. Verses four and five are the Christmas story in two verses. It's the fact that Jesus came to earth. It's the climax. It's the game changer. In these two verses, we see that Jesus had two natures. He was both God, he was his son, and he was man. He was born of a woman. So we see the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus in these two verses. It also shows that Jesus enters into our prison and breaks us out. He was born under the law so he could rescue those who were under the law. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He makes it clear. God's not got a new plan now because he messed up on the first one. Jesus is coming in and he is the fulfillment of this. And he breaks people free out from under the law. These verses also show that Jesus forever changed our past. He redeemed us from the law. But catch this. It also shows that he has forever changed our future. We, we are adopted as sons. Some people would say this about what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means that you're forgiven from your sins. Is that true? Yes, but only partially. If we leave it as what it means to be a Christian is I've been forgiven of my sins, then what we've done is we've taken the first half of this truth and we've left the second half. That means Jesus has forever changed our past. We're now out from under the law. But guess whose job it is to now keep my clean slate clean moving forward? That would be mine. Jesus forgives us from our sin, has kind of a backward connotation to it. Uh, and, And so now I've got to keep my slate clean and work for it. And And that's not good news, right? That leads to anxiety, right? Gee, I know I'm sinning. Uh, that leads to uh, hip- hypocrisy and shame. Gee, I'm doing things I know I shouldn't be doing or not doing things I know I should be doing. I guess I better kind of hide it because it looks like most of you aren't sinning. I must be the only one. I've got to go underground with this. It leads to exhaustion. You ever tried to keep your slate clean? I mean, you're just erasing all the time, right? So that's exhausting. And then finally, it's impossible. It's impossible for us to keep our slate clean. So the, the, the half-truth is that what it means to be a Christian is that our sins are forgiven. God has saved us from something, but he's also saved us to something. Here's the great news. He also saves us to being adopted sons. That changes literally every single day of your future. He's redeemed your past, and now every single day of your future is brand new because you've received, you've been received into the family of God, and you're now walking as true sons of God. Isn't that good news? Come on now, that's good news. Paul wants his friends to know what I want you to know. You're the adopted children of God. You're free. Now go live like it. Don't you dare go back to an old life of slavery. Don't you dare go back and get yourself under that heavy burden of keeping your slate clean again. That's what he's wanting them to know in this. Now God knew that it would be a fight 
for every single one of us. I hope in here you have this tension going on. But Dave, am I the only one that, that seems to want, like I don't know why I would want to go back to that logically, but I tend to go back to this, this performance anxiety that I have with God. I, I, I keep feeling like I need to be doing this to measure up, even though I know logically that's not true. God knew it would be a fight for every single one of us to want to go back to our natural state, to want to go back to this, this way of slavery of let me achieve, let me give something in return for a gift I could never afford. So you know what God did? He gave us a present. How many of you got presents at Christmas? Anyone? Good, a couple of you. Some are like, does coal count? Yes, coal counts, okay? You got presents at Christmas time. Here it is in verses 4 to 5. We have the Christmas story that Advent, Christ came. And what happens? God gives us a gift. Now, Jesus is the big gift, right? But but he gives us a different gift. Look look at verse uh, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit here. Now, what do we know about about the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. What is God the Spirit's role? We know a few things from Scripture. We know that he's, He's the comforter. He comforts our hearts. We know that He tells us the truth when other people lie to us. You have lying voices coming at you all the time. Sometimes they're from within your own head. And the Holy Spirit tells us the truth. You know what else? Uh, When we're feasting on God's word, you know what the Holy Spirit does? It illuminates. It like takes a flashlight and shines it so that we can understand and discern spiritual things. And then here in this passage, we see this, that part of the Holy Spirit's role is to reassure us. Listen to Proverbs 4. It says, above all else, it's probably pretty important, Above all else, guard your hearts. For from it, your heart, flows the wellspring of life. Guard your hearts. God knew how important your heart is, so he sends help, or more accurately, he sends a helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, I absolutely know that God loves me. I know that. I'm certain of it. And some of you in this room might think, well, that seems like the pinnacle of pride. How arrogant of you to to say that you would know that. What I want to show you uh, briefly is this. A, that did you know the Bible tells us to make certain of it? If God's going to command us to do something, don't you think he'd he'd provide the, the means for that to happen? In 2 Peter 1, it says this, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. We should be sure of this. God wants us to be sure of this. Did you know that God the Son and God the Spirit both have roles in letting me know that I'm a Christian, in letting me know that I'm an adopted child of God? Let's look at the the, the work of the Son for a moment. The work of Jesus Christ is objective. There's a legal status that has changed because of what he did, and it will never move, no matter how I feel about it, no matter how I I feel close to God or far away from God, 
It's an objective reality that will never change. The, the, the work of the Son in letting me know is objective. It's unchanging. It's secure. The work of the Spirit kind of works in tandem with the work of the Son, but it's different. There's a subjective nature to it. There's an individual nature to it. There's an internal nature to it. It's emotional. The work of the Son is that God the Holy Spirit lives in us, agreeing with our soul, and as this passage says, actually crying out from within us, go to God. You are God's. He loves you. He's your Father. There's four kinds of people in the world. There's those who are saved, and they know that they're saved. They've received the grace of God, and they're sure in it, and they're walking in that. There are people... Secondly, who are saved, they have received the grace of God, but they are unsure of it. They're not walking all the time knowing that they're adopted children of God. They might be wrestling with a sin or a conscience issue or something else, and they might just have a temperament that, that seems to put them on more of a wavy line where, where they're, they're saved, they're in. I don't know who they are. I'm not God. God judges that. God knows that. But they're unsure of it. There's a third kind of person, uh, those who are unsaved, and they know it. Look, I've got a problem with God. God has a problem with me. We both know that. Jesus, no thank you. They're just, they're unsaved, and they, and they know they're unsaved. And then there's a fourth kind of person. I think this might be one of the most dangerous states to be in. It's the person who is unsaved, but they think that they're saved. Some of the people that Paul deals with in all these different letters are people in that camp. They, they've put their hope in something that isn't secure. They've trusted in salvation for something that can't save. Imagine putting on your school backpack, kids. How many of you are back to school yet? Uh, next week. Coming up, right? Two days for, our, for our, our kids. Imagine putting on your school backpack and thinking it's a parachute. And someone comes along and says, no, you better not jump, bro. That's, uh, that's going to work out real bad for you. You know, and you're, you pull the cord and out come your pencils and papers as you fly down. You're like, I was wrong. Um, that's false assurance. You see how dangerous that is? But what if you're utterly convinced that Jansport is actually a parachute brand and not a backpack for school kids brand? That's, that's a dangerous state to be in. It's, it's false assurance. It's those who think they're saved but they really aren't saved. So how can I know? Which camp are you? If those are four kinds of people, which kind of person are you? One of the things that as a pastor I get called in to do once in a while is people call and say, would you come visit so-and-so? I think they're on their deathbed, and they want assurance of salvation. What would you say? What would you say? Think about this. Put yourself in my shoes for a minute. You get called, and you've got 10 minutes to drive to Good Sam. You're going to see someone laying in a bed, and you're going to be at, at their bedside, and they want assurance of salvation. Where would you go in Scripture? What would you say to them? What kinds of things would, would, would you pursue in, in that? I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't go and pat them on the head and say, Jan, that's a really nice backpack. Jan Sports are good. They give a money-back guarantee. It's a nice backpack you've got. I don't pat them on the head and just say, I'm sure you're saved. Rest easy. And I don't think you would either. But that's a pretty 
poignant moment, wouldn't you say, to, to walk in and, and, and say, what would I save there? How can I be sure that I'm saved? It's part of what this passage is trying to get us to. If you don't remember anything else, come back to this passage. This is, this is one of those passages. Here's, here's what you can do. Trust in the finished work of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that we could never live? And then get this, he gives us the A+. He says, you get the A-plus for your life. And you say, but, but I didn't live the A-plus life. I know, but that's been gifted to you. You now get to be seen as the A-plus life. Trust in that. That's unchanging. It's a new legal status that you have. Secondly is to rest in this reality and follow the Spirit's lead. Did you know that if you're a child of God, you receive the Holy Spirit at that moment of, of, of belief, of, of, of trust? You're a brand new person. Jesus called it being born again. When you follow the Spirit's lead, do you know where you're going to end up? You're going to end up right back to God. Look at the word Abba. You see that in verse 6? Let's read it. It says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, long before that was a hit band in the 70s, um, that word means, it's kind of this intimate word. And most every commentary I've ever read and is what I heard growing up is it's kind of a baby talk word of daddy. It's like this intimate word. But, but I think if you leave it just in baby talk and you think of it just as infancy, you miss out on what the, the real punch of this, the real punch of that word is that it's an intimate word. It's not so much, the emphasis isn't so much that it's an infant word, but that it's an intimate word. I mean, doesn't it seem preposterous that we should go to, to the creator of the entire universe and snuggle up and call him daddy and, and refer to him in close, intimate terms? But the Holy Spirit of God tells us, no, 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 it's okay. That's appropriate. You're his. Go on. Jesus shows us the way in this. Jesus opens the door by praying that way to his intimate, close Father. To let these truths settle on us, gang, is, is so powerful. This is how God chooses to reveal himself to us in these close, intimate, family terms. It's powerful. I don't know if you ever feel like the right thing to do when you're doing something wrong is to run away from God. But I suspect that you've felt that before. This started with our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? Genesis, you can go read the story. They do the wrong thing. Oops, we weren't supposed to do that. What do they do? They hid themselves. You ever play hide-and-go-seek with God? It's tough. He's super good at it. So they're hiding, right? And they're trying to hide from God. Why are they hiding? Because the natural state of us says we should run from the light because we're not holy and pure and A+. And that's a tactic that the enemy has used every single day since then is to prompt us, is to drive us, is to try and grab us and move us away from the very place we need to go. Run away from God is what our flesh tells us. You know what the Holy Spirit does to us? It motivates us to do something that isn't natural to us. Hey, you've offended the most holy God and you're aware of it. Run to him. That's counterintuitive to our flesh. Our flesh says, run away. The Holy Spirit of God says, get over here. 
You're my kid. I've paid for that sin. Let's deal with this and let's move on. That's the Holy Spirit of God that moves us in that direction. Romans 8, Paul wrote this as well. You'll hear some similarities, but it kind of expands on the verse we just read. Romans 8, 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, If you have smaller children in your home right now, if you're in that phase of life, you'll track with this. If not, um, you'll you'll get it. But when my kids come, when I come home from work, for instance, I don't have my kids that have somehow, you know, prepared a speech for me and say, Dear Father, I beseech thee, come view my drawing, which I made for you. I mean thee. They don't do that, right? They don't pull out a speech and talk to me. What do they do? They grab my hand. I just saw this in church today. They grab my hand. They say, get over here. Come over here. I want to show you something. I'm really excited about that. And so I come, and it's a really joyful thing. And and I I want to tell you that because of this. This this helps inform our prayer life. Our prayer life doesn't need to feel like, dearest father. Now, there are seasons of time, there are moments where that's, where that's really appropriate. There are things I have said, I've prepared some things for my own dad that I have said. But, but by and large, it's close, intimate, familiar language. I long for you to grow in your prayer life. I, I long for you as you read through the word that you're just talking to your father. God, thanks for that being true. God, I tend to not believe this. Would, 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 would you instill this in me? God, I see you working this out right now. God, I have no idea what this even means. This seems crazy. Jesus, that was funny. I hope that as you read the word, you're you're just in this conversation. And I want you to think about it the way a kid who loves their daddy would talk to them back and forth and not in some formal, distant, cold way. I want for you what Paul wanted for his flocks, which is this assurance that your son assurance that you're free in that. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Look at the title slide for a moment. Um, There are people, probably you've done this, where you've looked up in the sky before and asked these kinds of questions. God, are you there? God, what is this life about? What's really going on? And as you look up and as you see it, intentionally the word God is, is, is a little bit hazy. Because maybe it's been hazy for you over time. And you go, God, I just wish it was written in the stars. I, I wish you would give me just this clear sign. What's happening? What's really true? Before Christ, you were either bound by religious law or you were bound by false ideas about God. 
One of the false ideas about gods is, is this, that you, that you grow up to become God, that you are God. I mean, isn't this the lie of Satan in the garden? Didn't it start there? Eat of this and what? You'll be able to discern good from evil and you will be what? Like God. That's Satan's downfall. And that's what he wants to bring people into. Look at your handout for a moment. Um, If your handout has an apostrophe between D and S, um, then you don't need to do anything. But for the rest of you who don't have an apostrophe there, I want you to put an apostrophe on your title, on the title of your handout, Growing Up Gods. Some of you have no apostrophe. Um, and one already, I already knew there was a, there's an English teacher that sits in our midst all the time, and I thought he might get this. But before we even started, I mean, here's how good quality control is here at, at NBC. I had someone come up to me, Chi in the back. I just have to point you out, Chi. Chi comes up and he says, Dave, there's two different bulletins. One has an apostrophe and one doesn't. And I'm like, I can't get anything by you, Chi. That's on purpose. Here it is. Here's the purpose right here. Okay, That's to represent this. There is a whole line of thinking of people who think that they are going to be gods. Some are putting a name to it and a religion to it and stating it explicitly. Some just live that way. If you live for yourself, who's God? Who's the most important? You are. It's creating a God in your own image if everything revolves around you and your happiness and, and your whatever. So if, if you are in the camp of not having that apostrophe, put that apostrophe in, and that's representative of what Christ did. Christ came and paid the ransom. You are now God's. You are now possessed by God. He, he, you're, you're his, and that's a great thing. You know what he does with that? He sets us free. We get to walk in freedom of that. There's a person by the name of John Newton, and you may have heard of him. He wrote a little hymn called Amazing Grace. You may have heard of that. And he's a good example of what it is to remember what we once were, and by the grace of God, never go back to the state that God rescued us out of. And John Newton was an only child. Think about this, if you're seven years old in here today. At seven years old, he lost his mother. He went to sea at the age of 11 and later became involved what, in the words of one of his biographers said, in the unspeakable atrocities of the African slave trade. He plumbed the depths of human sin and degradation. When he was 23, on March 10, 1748, his ship was in imminent peril of sinking in, in this huge storm. And he cries out to God for mercy, and he finds it. He was truly converted. He never forgot how God had mercy upon him, a former blasphemer. In order to imprint it on his memory, he had written in bold letters and fastened across the wall over the mantelpiece of his study the words of Deuteronomy 15.15, which say this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Friends, I want you to walk out of here remembering this. The, Christians, the, the, the Christian life is about being God's children and not being slaves. It's about being free and not in bondage. Let's go live that. Let's go walk in that. Let's pray. God, I pray that um, through your word, through music, 
through just being together as your people, you would do a couple of things this morning. Would you reassure us? God, would you just, in ways that only you can do, and to the individual need of each person here, would you reassure our hearts of our status with you? For some in this room who may have never professed faith in you, who aren't saved, I pray that you would convict. I pray that you would spur to action. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation would come to their home today. And Father, for those who are enslaved today, they're saved by you, but they're walking like slaves. They're not free. They're fearful. I pray that the spirit of adoption the reality of what it means to be a beloved kid of yours would overwhelm them right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to take up our offering right now.